Zod in a, in a, in a don't worry about it. Do your show. <laughs> How do I start my show? <laughs> How do you start your show? Hello and welcome to Bring Your Own Popcorn. Let us preach to your choir or stoke your ire as we softly ASMR our opinions into your hearing holes. What we lack in education, we make up for with rants, raves, and rambles. I'm your host, Mixtape Majesty, here today with a very special guest, a dear close friend, Kevin Scott Brown, who is a writer, actor, podcast person, host of the globally popular Rankinator, which is a comedy game show, lover of Pokemon, loves to cry, really good at drinking water, and doing mayonnaise spit takes. That's Thank right. Thank you so much for making time in your busy schedule <laughs> of drinking water to it's be on... Out. To be on bring your own popcorn very, thank you so much important. i'm glad you took everything i've said the last 20 minutes and shoved it back in my face it's a talent of mine we're here today to discuss a film that you suggested that's near yes. and dear to your heart but before yes. we get into that we want to oh, talk no. about other things that are near and dear to your heart and in general your experience with movies I'm and your cinematic experience i'm sorry it was shocking i usually I try to bring we came people. here I came bit. here to w- talk about the movie that we suggested. I didn't know about this gotcha journalism. I got to let people know, like, who is this Kevin guy? Like, why do I care about his opinion on this specific animated feature from 1982? So first, I have to get a little bit of insight into who this guy is. Who is Mr. S. Brown? I am out of water. Yeah, go ahead. Let's do it. I've, I've read the I've read the podcast before. I'm set. I've read your podcast. Listen to the audiobook. I, yeah, I get the transcripts. I, I mail away for the transcripts and they send oh, it yeah. to me. So. That's a top tier Patreon perk. Thank you for being a patron. Something I like to focus on is watching movies in the theaters because I think that watching a movie in the theater is a very specific, special experience where you get to cut out distractions and it's often done with your family or friends or dates or special people. It's very yeah. different than when you casually Netflix and chill or whatever. So what is your preference generally watching a movie at home or in theater and how do you choose between them? I, I think I have a good nostalgia for the theaters like I'm a lot of people do. Having a year and a half of the pandemic and being like, don't go to theaters, you'll die. Made you really want to go back for nostalgic reasons. But honestly, I, I prefer watching something at home at my own leisure. And you do miss the experience of like a big screen in front of you, but I've been dabbling more into VR experiences. And honestly, that's that's the way to go for me. Like it, it VR puts me in a movie theater and there's a big screen in front of me and it feels like I'm at a tiny theater like the Crest and no one's there. And uh, I really enjoy the VR experiences right now. And if you got to pee, you just pause and, and go pee and come back. I saw Spider-Man 3, drank a lot of water beforehand and I had to go Sounds to the Sounds like you. <laughs> yeah, I left the scene where they almost killed the um, Gwen Stacy character moment that's uh so <laughs> my favorite spider-man moments um, revealed revealed you said that you're using your vr headset because it has like a cool immersive experience where it like yes. seems like you're really in the theater and then yes. you said it's great because you can take it off to pee my yeah. question is why would you take it off to pee you could just wear the vr headset and go to the bathroom and if you know your house well enough you could even leave on the movie if you want you could pee you could put the vr headset sit on your toilet and bring a plate of nachos and you'll never have to leave one room in your house. I have not done that yet. I did watch this movie that we're talking about today on my VR headset. Mm. And I and I do think it was more of a somatic experience than if watching it on a TV. If I had to tear it, I guess VR headset. <laughs> I'm ranking it. VR headset and then a tie for at home and drive-ins and then maybe movie theaters after that. Mm. Purely because nostalgia. Like I did have experience in the theaters recently. That reminded me why I hate going to theaters. Very good ranking. I'm so glad that you brought up ranking because yes. if you haven't already listened to Kevin's show, Rankinator, which I assume yeah. is why you're here because you saw yes. that he was on another podcast. Oh, that's why I'm You here. should listen to it because Kevin's really good at ranking stuff. And so are his friends and other people that he forces to rank things. Yes. That is Sometimes they're not good at it at first and then they become good after yeah. threat of violence. Yes. But yeah, tell me about your most recent experience in the theaters. Well, I, I'm such a fan of the show. Are you going to do the uh, what movie you saw last at the before the pandemic question? Or tell me about your recent nightmare experience okay. returning to the movie theaters after I, the pandemic in a post-pandemic world. I used to go to the movie theaters like every Tuesday. 
every Tuesday because there was um, a theater I used to go to that had a matinee special, 21 and older, so no kids. It was very nice. And they, they had Hell the whole yeah. service thing. You could push a button and someone brings you drinks or whatever. Like, I love that kind of experience. That I missed that a lot with the pandemic. The last movie I saw was Black Widow. I just watched it recently. I went to a matinee on a Saturday by myself. So I'm sitting in the theater. First time really doing this, like, you know, popcorn, icy. And I'm watching Black Widow. And the people behind me are like an old couple who have to talk the entire time. <laughs> this point in the movie where there's a plane flying into a land strip and the two of them go, oh, where's that? I don't know. Looks real nice. And then it says, literally two seconds later, it says Cuba in big white font. And they both go, oh, Cuba. Hmm. And I literally wanted to pull my eyes out and my ears off. Then I realized, but no, this, this is what the experience is. The experience is not knowing who you're going to sit with. I'm just going to, I'm going to let it go very much be like, this is what the theater experience is, what I paid to get into. Yeah, and as I finally, it out. Zen it out, as soon as I finally get it Zen out, I'm relaxing, I'm enjoying it. Koomp. The dude kicks my seat. <laughs> the same, the same guy that was talking? Same, same people behind me. The same oh, people God. behind me. One of them kicks my seat so hard that I shake forward a little bit. And I was just like, yeah, yeah, I hate this. That is the quintessential bad movie theater experience. And I guess it's because we're in a post-pandemic world and people are so used to being isolated and just living in their own little worlds now that they think they're still at home on the couch watching Netflix. But I don't want to sound like a jerk, but just if just keep the talking to a minimum. That's why I always go for matinee prices. Good or bad, I can always walk away and be like, I only paid six dollars. There's a lot of people that went and went into Disney Plus and paid the thirty dollars to watch that movie. And I feel sorry for them. Um, <laughs> Continuing on the this vein that seems to bring you much joy. <laughs> theaters. Yes. What was the theaters. first movie you ever remember seeing in movie theaters? The first one I have a real good memory is there's a place near me called Birdcage Mall or the Birdcage Shopping Center. It used to have a theater there and they would do like matinee double headers. And um, I took my dad to go see, I want to say it was the Care Bear movie. And then in between the Care Bear movie and the next movie was a magician act. And then after that, it was like Cinderella or Sleeping Beauty. Wait, like a real life musician? Yeah. What? Like, like did rabbits out of the hat. Magic guy. Not oh musician. Oh my God, that's amazing. Magician. Yeah. And I remember my, I remember this is, this is such an interesting thing is that my, I had a very like fluid childhood because my parents did not restrict me from what toys I could get. So I had My Little Pony and Care Bears and G.I. Joes and Transformers. You know, my dad was very much against me having any girl toys. So he hated taking me to go see a girl movie with a bunch of girls. Care Bears? He was very, very much like, I can't believe I'm taking my son to go see the Care Bear movie or the My Little Pony movie. Like Lord. he was very much, yeah, against that. I remember that very clearly. But Dang. I'm like, hey. My uncle dressed up as a Care Bear in, I think it was Halloween, like 91. Mm, that's a little and he, old. And he was a boy. Yeah. No, he wasn't 91. The year was 91. I mean, yeah, but that's a little old for Care Bears. Like 91, like Care Bears are out the out the door a little bit like they'll pass a so i'm a little worried because you revealed not only exactly what you saw you also revealed the date which means it'll be really easy for time traveling assassins to find exactly where you were I, like we'll be in the middle of recording this and you'll suddenly just disappear uh, but maybe you'll still be there you'll just be different because you'll like whoa you, you actually know. just jumped on the video <laughs> the video just like freaked no, out i'm scared no it didn't um yeah by the way my dad died in a movie theater when i was a kid i was joking <laughs> They did a, Disney did a lot of re-releasing the theaters. So we saw Jungle Book when it came out again. A family near us, the dad fell asleep and the daughter dumped the popcorn on his head. Like, <laughs> like, that was something I remember. Like she, He fell asleep, he's snoring, and she takes the popcorn and you just see his little hands reach up and dump it all on his head. He's like, whoa. whoa. <laughs> on the topic of dads. Yeah. What was the first movie that you saw without your parents in oh, general? Oh, yeah. Um, this is... This is clear in my head. I was a bit of a mama's boy and didn't, that's such a bad phrase. Very strict mama's about man. It. Mama's man. <laughs> Even worse. <laughs> Couldn't go anywhere without my parents' permission a lot. My, my mom watched a lot of uh, Unsolved Mysteries and would tell me people would kidnap me if I strayed too far from her. So it was very much a fear-based relationship. But in 1999, my uncle took me and my brother to go see a movie. And my brother was, God, he was like six. I wanted to see Doug's new movie. And that was cool for him, but I was like, not, I'm 10 years older. I didn't want to really see Doug's new movie or whatever. There was this thing called The Matrix playing there, and I had not heard about it. 
So I asked my uncle if he could buy me a ticket to go see The Matrix while they went to see Doug the movie because it was at the same time. He's like, okay, sure. So went in, watched The Matrix, uh, blew my mind because it was such a, like a crazy film for the time and place. This is the first movie I saw all by myself. Damn, what a great first movie to see without your parents, period. Mm-hmm. And then like, what a great age and movie to see like by yourself because I didn't yeah. go to the movie theaters alone until I was like 22 because people always like, there's yeah. like this reputation of if you go out to dinner by yourself or if you go to the movie theaters by yourself, it's like sad and you're lonely yeah. or whatever, which is bullshit because it's amazing. It's it's mm-hmm. so fun to go to the movie theaters by yourself or to go to the restaurant by yourself. And especially in the movie theater in the old days before you could reserve your seats, people assume someone's with you. So then there's no one next yeah. to you, just, which is great. Yeah. <laughs> Such a great movie to see at that age. I saw it's it. Really cool. I didn't get to see it in the theaters, but I saw it at the same time like as soon as it came on to DVD and it was my favorite movie for like yeah. my entire adolescence. I believe I walked out of that movie theater, a man. Um, <laughs> no, if anything like pushed me on the direction of being in the entertainment industry, it was that movie. Cause that, oh, movie, wow. was, that movie was so like, you know, Keanu Reeves wasn't exactly the heartthrob that he was. It was like his re- recoming back movie um, really putting him as a name and the writing was really great. And the, just the special effects, all that stuff. It, you can't watch that movie back then and not be like, I want to be involved in this industry somehow. Agent Smith, one of the best villains probably ever in a film, like top mm-hmm. five. And I, I can't remember, but I remember there was some controversy that they might have ripped off the movie. But oh, honestly, I'll have to look into that. Yeah. It doesn't seem like them. The Wachowski Starship, they're, it doesn't seem like something they do, but what do I know? What's your favorite movie snack in the movie theater? Well, what I had during Black Widow is pretty much my favorite, which is popcorn with butter and an icy. I love little cherry ices or Coca-Cola ices. Those are fun. Those are good because you can drink them and then you get a headache and you stop drinking them. And then eventually they turn into a juice with ice. What movies have you seen in the Mile High Club? What movies have you seen on an airplane? I've taken a 14-hour flight one time and got to watch a lot of movies. Went to Japan. That's a 14-hour flight from Sacramento to... Oh, no, I've told you where I live. Uh, <laughs> it's from the Sacramento International Airport, which might be the closest airport to me. I don't know. Who knows where I am? Uh, Wait, you need to make a winking sound effect. Wink. Wink. I definitely watched Wonder Woman on a plane. Watched uh, Spider-Man Homecoming again on a plane. Nice. I watched Baby Driver on a plane. So 14 hours is a long time to kill. So at some point I stopped watching whatever I'm watching and would watch whatever pe- other people are watching. With no I got sound? Curious. Yeah. And I'd be like, oh yeah, they're watching Baby Driver. I just watched that. Oh, this is a good part. Oh, they reacted. Nice. Just watching <laughs> people watch movies. Were any of these movies, you were watching them for the first time or were these mm-hmm. all rewatches? Wonder Woman was the first time. Baby Driver was the first time. And Homecoming, I've, I've seen a lot. But I have 14 hours, so it's like, I can do whatever I want. I can stop and just pick something else. But if it's like, oh, I only got three hours till I go to bed. I don't know if I want to watch this. I might hate it. Well, that's the hard thing <sighs> about an airplane movie. Oh, I mean, unless you can you can just change it, put on a different movie. But like, because yeah. I'll walk out of a movie theater. I've walked out of so many movies. Like, I don't even remember. I can't tell you which ones I've watched, walked out of exactly. Because if I just don't like it, I leave. What's the big deal? Yeah. You paid the money. You do what you want. Why would I, yeah. Why would I sit yeah. there? One movie became the closest I ever walked out of a movie, and that was Wolverine Origins. Yeah. I might have walked out of that. And that is also the movie that ruined midnight showings for me. Like, I used to love getting to, to theaters and waiting till, you know, 11 o'clock midnight to watch a hot new movie coming out as like a young adult. And then I saw Wolverine Origins and I said, never again. I'm never going to spend extra money, waste my time on a work day, and, and come watch a movie that sucks. <laughs> I'd rather go at a matinee on a Sunday. And if it sucks, I don't have the rest of my day to kind of like cheer up from it. I can't remember if I've ever seen a midnight showing because it's never interested me. I'm never in so much of a hurry to watch something that I would want to see it in the worst circumstances possible. You're Because mm-hmm. so, like, if you go to a midnight showing, you're going to be tired. You're going to be probably hungry. You're going to be thinking about how you have work the next day. You're going to have a bunch of fans. You're going to have the most, the worst annoying, people, the, worst people. <laughs> the most annoying people. Them. And you're one of them surrounding you, everybody yeah. talking, yeah. being really loud, drawn out reactions. Yeah. I don't like, know. As soon as like, um, I saw Spider-Man two that way. I was super excited to see Spider-Man two at midnight showing. And like, as soon as the movies finally started, like there was like a long standing O just to have the opening credits of all these nerds and geeks going like, oh yeah. That's when, Woo! that's when everyone standing O, that's when everyone stands up and orgasms at the same time. Yeah. I wasn't a big fan. I almost left, but you know, um, Toby kept me in the seat. He's great. Who's your favorite Spider-Man? Tom Holland. 
he is the perfect Spider-Man. Let's just get Same. that out of the way. Correct Toby, answer. Tobey Maguire, great Peter Parker, very boring. Uh, uh, Andrew Garfield, great Spider-Man. He was really funny, but not a great Peter Parker. But Tom Holland is like the per- perfect mix of quirky, funny, awkward. He's like handsome, but not trying to be handsome. I don't know. Boy you know next door. Boy next door. Man yeah. next door. He's the, he's my favorite. He's my favorite Spider-Man so far in live action. Agreed. I agree that he's your favorite. Thank you. What did movies mean in your family? Was it like a family event or would you kind of just go watch by yourself or? It was very much a family event. My dad was a VCR repairman uh, when I was a young boy. And he would just be, have VCRs around, have these VCR tapes going to the rental store was a big deal. Every weekend we probably got a film. And since they probably couldn't go to the theaters to see stuff with me as a child that much, they would buy R-rated and more adult entertainment and just put it on like Rocky, not Rocky Horror Show, um, Little Shop at Horrors. I never seen that as a kid. Um, 48 Hours. I always bring these up, like these dirty cop movies, these action movies my, my mom and dad would watch and I'd just be there watching them. So I've seen a lot of stuff a kid probably couldn't, shouldn't see, but I did. Yeah. Very, very 80s parenting style. Yeah. Yeah. If I wasn't watching TV, then I was playing video games. If I wasn't playing video games, I was being told not to walk to the mailbox by myself because a stranger is going to kidnap me and, and have sex with me. So the two there. things, two like quintessential things about 80s parenting. You let your yeah. kids watch absolutely everything, even everything, though they can yeah. be traumatized and are going to get very warped ideas oh, about was. women and sex and oh. safety. And also, also you teach them about stranger danger, which is just the generic idea that everyone is dangerous and wants to kill them. Yeah, exactly. Um, I I just realized the movie that traumatized me the most as a child, Land Before Time, which does as a connection to this movie, I think. It does. Yeah. Land Before Time, um, I was maybe in first grade when that came out and the scene where the mom died traumatized me. The idea that my mom had a like shelf life that she could (laughs) die at any moment was like, I did not want to go to first grade anymore because I you, thought my mom was going to die. Did you pick up your mom and turn her over to look for the expiration date? Yeah, yeah, I did. She's only five, six. So it was really easy. <laughs> um, no, my mom would drop me off at school and I would cry. They, would, they couldn't get me to stop crying because I watched The Land Before Time and I was sure that my mom was going to die if I wasn't around. Damn. That's a movie for kids. That's, that's just the one, that's the one that did it though because there's so many yeah. Disney movies. and Bambi doesn't show it though. Bambi doesn't oh. show it. The Land King didn't even really show it. I mean, they do kind of show him passed out dead. It's the fact that line before time is just like, he's there, his mom's there. And then she's just gone. And he's there like, doesn't he like nestle against her or something like her dead body? Yeah. Yeah. It's ringing a bell. It didn't, it didn't resonate with me. I'm vaguely remembering. Very traumatizing. And the the Pizza Hut puppets. Those were terrifying too. Um, (laughs) Yeah. They make you question mortality. Yes. Uh, well no because like they do these promotional ads for movies for kids and they're like here's puppets from pizza hut buy pizza hut, get these puppets and you get like invested in the movie before you see the movie and then you see the movie and the point of the movie is that your parents can die at any moment and life is sucks life, <laughs> life sucks your parents are gonna die you and your friends are gonna have to travel to the united states to find a place that might might or may not exist i think it's okay to present these dark difficult do- topics in movies for kids but i think the mm-hmm. biggest issue with it is the american family and how broken it is and yeah. like we were just saying about how bad our parents were at parenting yeah. is that they weren't there to walk their kids through this and be like explain what's happening concept. and yeah. yeah talking to children what? about emotions <laughs> because something people will say is movies can't traumatize kids first of all they can it's pretty easy and it doesn't even have to be saw or blade runner Mm -hmm. to traumatize a kid it can be the land before time because it just depends on the kid and it depends on the parents and it depends on how safe the kid feels in whatever their home environment is depends on what the reaction is if you were like me and if you cried at things that Mm -hmm. your parents would make fun of you and call you chicken like then you're probably gonna get more traumatized yeah I mean, there's there's something to say about live action films where as a kid, you understand their actors and their people. Like I got that pretty quick when I saw someone get shot in one movie and then next week we watch a movie and he's still alive. So it's like, okay, these are actors. This is what this is. But to have the mortality of death be showed in a cartoon format, which was what I was in love with, like that was the big one for me. Like that one really set it off that like there's mortality. People can die at any moment. It can be your family. You know, these people don't live forever. My parents did not explain that to me very well, or still probably. 
your parents um, still haven't explained. God, they I never had the sex talk. There was never. a death talk. Wasn't a death talk. Wasn't a sex talk. Wasn't anything with me. They were like, hey, figure it. They, I, I started growing like facial hair and becoming a man. Uh, instead of teaching me to shave or anything, they just bought me an electric razor for Christmas. <laughs> they and just noticed you, you had stubble and just like quietly, yeah. anonymously asked Santa to give you an electric razor. They didn't say Santa because I was old enough to know that Santa was... Um, uh, Dead. Uh, my uncle's dog ate him that's at least yeah. that's what i learned oh, i was gonna say that he's a figment of the corporate america to continue the capitalism of our generation well uh, your parents are woke no no i was I was. <laughs> that's what they wrote woke. on the tag oh. Yeah. oh okay that's what you wrote on the tag yeah. so, you yeah, crossed I, out santa yeah, figment of my, corporate america <laughs> my dad would drink would drink out of bernie's skull if he could he's so <laughs> oh god he's so and he's so pro cap so you're saying he loves him so much he wants to become part of him <laughs> that's right but yeah, I remember getting that razor for Christmas and that being like, well, you're growing hair now. So here you go. That was the talk. That was it. That sucks. But at least they noticed. <laughs> you're right. I'm so glad I'm just, that they I'm noticed. Just, I'm comparing it to my experience. Uh, some breaking movie news. Disney just released the earnings from Black Widow. If they're combining a box office numbers from the U.S. internationally and people that bought it on Disney Plus, saying that it brought in $215 million, which is the largest opening for a film since the pandemic. Since the pandemic? The last movie that did those kind of numbers was Rise of Skywalker in 2019. But are also combining the fact that if you bought it for $30 rental on Disney Plus. Yeah, it's not that, really fair. Yeah, it's weird, but that's what they're saying. Classic Disney. Classic Disney. Now that we've established who the heck Kevin Scott Brown is. We can get into the discussion of our feature film for tonight. So in 1979, Walt Disney Animation Studios was in the process of phasing out traditional animation and tightening the belts on its animation production in favor of quicker, faster animation, cheaper animation, and live action family flicks. So from 1977 to 1981, the only animated Disney films that you could see in theaters were just constant re-releases of their old movies or their old animated movies. So like Bambi, Peter Pan, A Song of the South, (laughs) a movie which no one ever needed to see again, a movie that was so racist that there were picketers outside of the theaters even in the year it was released in 1946. Even 1946 Americans knew that that movie was racist. (laughs) Boo. So cut to 1979, Disney had not released an animated feature film since the highly successful Rescuers in 1977. And the partially animated major dud, Pete's Dragon, Peter's Dragon, (laughs) Peach's Dragon in the same year, which both have something in common. Mm-hmm. One of Disney's most prolific animators and animation directors of the new wave of Disney animators, which uh, is to differentiate them from what was called the Nine Old Men, capital N-O-M, Nine Old Men, of Disney, which were the original animation people who had started back in the when Disney first started doing animated features. Um, and they had kind of, they were very old. Most of them had retired. The ones that had stayed around weren't doing as much and a lot of them had forgotten what they did like don bluth tells a story about how he asked them how they made the water look so wet in fantasia and they were like oh i don't know <laughs> and they didn't Jesus they didn't write it fuck. down or preserve any uh. of it <laughs> so they just had to start figuring it out this new wave of animators that's and- so funny like these old guys being like oh yeah we don't need to teach anybody we'll live forever yeah just make money off of it make a big name and <laughs> retire rich yeah (laughs) i actually have no idea if they're rich animators aren't known for being rich (laughs) but they worked for disney i don't know anyhow don bluth was one of the most famous of these new this new wave of animators who were trying to figure out how to make things look as good as it used to some of them and others of them were just kind of going with the flow with whatever disney wanted them to do with this cheaper quicker faster animation but don bluth wanted to keep traditional animation alive with its vivid detailed backgrounds keeping everything hand drawn extremely labor intensive but very alive don bluth worked on over a dozen animated disney films starting in 1955 he it was like his life's dream to work with them 1955 he got a job with them his dream job that he'd been working towards his whole life found it to be boring so he left and traveled the world (laughs) Mm -hmm. and then he came back 
and did fucking rescuers in 1977. But with each passing year working with Disney, he was growing more and more disillusioned with their for-profit model of cutting corners and taking shortcuts, reusing things Mm -hmm. um, that because he's his whole passion is animation. He sees it as a living breather, breathing creature that can influence people. I cut in here real quick. Mm -hmm. We've all seen that sort of split screen uh, Disney thing where they show a dance sequence from Robin Hood where he's dancing with someone and then they split screen it with a dance sequence from like Jungle Book. And it's literally the same steps, steps in motion. So what they did was they just copied the motions and just put different character models on top of it to save money and time. Exactly. So that's which, the kind of stuff Disney was known for doing. Yes. And that was probably rotoscoping, which um, mm-hmm. is a technique that Don Bluth used with great success. But normally rotoscoping is where you take live action video and you kind of animate over it. And it can be done poorly and like cheaply where it looks really bad or it can be done artfully. One of his fellow animators who worked on him with a number of films, Ken Anderson, suggested around approximately 1978, suggested that they turn this young adult novel called Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim by Robert C. O'Brien into a movie. And it was this wacky movie about rats that get experimented on. And then Ken promptly retired from Disney. But Don Bluth stayed and he loved that idea. He brought it to the head honchos at Disney and they shot it down. They said that the story was too dark and they didn't want to do any more mouse movies because they already had <laughs> too many <laughs> mouse related properties. Damn it. Getting confused which... with the rescuers and mouses. I can't, and... I can't, I can't tell the difference. That's, that's just like the, when they didn't want to have too many green characters on the screen or they're like, we don't have too many uh, blue creatures in these Marvel movies because we don't, people get confused. Wait, you is know? that a thing with green creatures? Uh, Fox, Fox did not want there to be too many blue characters. There was Nightcrawler and they wanted to do Beast as well in the second X-Men movie. And the Fox executives were like, literally like, we can't have more than one blue character. It's going to confuse people. Oh they're not going to know which one's which. Yeah, that's so I classic. Could see classic studio heads being like well we can't have too many mices in films we're gonna get confusing yeah and that's the thing about studio head and executives is they're not connected to the people they think people are stupid and they want their money and that's the yeah. bottom line and that was becoming disney's bottom and top line and don bluth didn't want anything to do with that can you imagine an extended universe where the rescuers and the, the rats of nam were in the same universe like how fucking cool that would have been you missed out disney you fucking missed out you did rescuers down under and you could have had a whole fucking mouse franchise. Speaking of the rescuers, it was one of the most successful Disney films and one which Don Bluth was the animation director on. It was so successful in France that it outgrossed Star Wars and it was the highest grossing animation film of all time until 1986 when another little number called An American Tale knocked it out of that spot. Yet another mouse related properties i'm confused <laughs> ironically when american tale which is another don Bluth movie about mice knocked the rescuers out of the top grossing animation slot disney also released a mouse related property that same year the great mouse detective not as fun let's no, just call it, it what it is do you think a company that had mickey mouse as their head spokesman would be like more mice films are fine. Yeah, people like them. Yeah, <laughs> why restrict them? It's your the thing, and now you're gonna stop doing your thing. But like, yeah. also animation was their thing. Like that's how they started. And like, this that. was in a time period where they were like, no, we got to do live action flicks and be more adult, even though it's for kids. And it didn't make any uh, freaking sense. Aaron Walt hated animation. Like as it went along, he wanted to get into theme parks and live action. He said that was where the money was. Quicker, it's faster. You don't have to pay that much money towards a bunch of animators to draw and be creative and figure out stories. You can just slap anything together, call it the shoe tail sh- chandelier place. And then you're all set. Bed knobs and broomsticks, that kind of stuff. So when Don Bluth first started working at Disney, Walt was alive because Don Bluth started in 55. 55, so he's still like... Walt died in 66. And as Don Bluth tells it, that's more when it started to go downhill and they started making it more about money. Disney Mm -hmm. was a bad guy. I'm not a fan of Disney the man or the company that owns the literal world. But nonetheless, according to Don Bluth, he did actually care a little bit more about the animation and after he left, all that was left was his like business mongering attitude. Yeah. During 
his time with Disney, Don Bluth did such films as, or worked on such films as Sleeping Beauty, 101 Dalmatians, Sword in the Stone, Jungle Book, Aristocats, Robin Hood, Winnie the Pooh, and Tigger 2, Escape to Witch Mountain, The Mini Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, The Rescuers, Pete's Dragon, The Small One, The Fox and the Hound. The fights that happened. Yeah. The fights. The fights that happened over those last three movies, Pete's Dragon, Small One, Fox and the Hound, are what eventually led to Don leaving. This thing just makes a bunch of money. We better stop doing mice films. <laughs> it's too dark. So with all of that going Kill on. Kill Bambi's mom. <laughs> with all that going on, the final straw was when Don Bluth brought Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim to the table and was shot down. He said, you know what? I'm going to buy, we're going to buy our own equipment. Like- we're going to start working in our garage. So he started doing that and Don Bluth with a couple of other big Disney animator guys decided to leave and just do their own thing. So him and two other guys whose name I forget who are very important and that's why I forget their names walked out. We're soon followed within the next couple of days in 1979 with 12 animators from Disney, which was 17% of all of their animators. And interestingly, all of the women animators that Disney had left with dawn there was an atmosphere atmosphere of oppression is how it was described and if you were a woman animator you could not expect to get promoted you would be an assistant animator and that's it at disney the corporation (laughs) did walt know so together with this ragtag team of animators including all of the women from disney animation studios they decided to go ahead and do to create mrs frisbee the rest of nim into an animated feature and that, of course, is the movie that we're going to talk about today, which was not called Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Dim. It was no. called The Secret of Nim. Yeah. And you selected it when I asked you to think of a movie yeah. that changed your life or was very significant in your childhood. So, so tell me a bit about why you selected this movie in particular, why it's so special to you, what it meant to you as a child, what it means to you as an adult. Well, it's special for me because multiple reasons. Again, I think I said earlier that I, I saw cartoons. Cartoons were my thing. I loved cartoons as a kid. I remember getting really mad at movies because movies used to do a cartoon opening and then it'd be live action. And I would be so angry. Like, how dare you tease me with a cartoon and then give me a live action comedy? Get out of here, Uncle Buck. I remember liking cartoons a lot and Disney was the major player. Um, and the time I was alive was all the, like you said, the reanimated re-releasing of movies. Um, like seeing Snow White, Cinderella, saw the classics. I saw Rescuers probably. And I saw, you know, um, Aristocats all in theaters because they're just re-releasing. There wasn't anything new. And then Secret of Nim comes out. And I remember just liking that a lot, big time. And let's be honest, uh, Miss Frisbee is a babe. She's super hot. And I think, uh, I don't know why I, I watching it now I, I know why but back as a kid I was like oh yeah this is yeah this is a hot mouse character <laughs> so you know why now so what is it well I, I I know now because she's very much the sort of savior caring nursing mother character we watched we watched together you showed me a video of Don Blue talking about it and how they pulled up her her ears and hair and everything to give her this sort of like sorrow, sad, weak look. Like, I don't like the fact that I like it now. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> like I looking like back as a child, I feel tricked almost Aww. that that I, I, I had such hard feelings for this character because she does. They made her look weak. They made her look very like she couldn't do anything on her own. And then she has Aww. this magical adventure. Well, and... I, have two, I can I say two things about sure. that? First of all. I don't think she looks weak. I think she's, I think one big flaw that they have in their description, the creators have in their description of the movie is that they, they're trying to say that they took this weak character and she becomes strong and courageous at the end. Like the big finale is supposed to be that she finds her courage and that makes magic happen, but she's strong and courageous throughout the whole thing. The issue with that is that she's strong in a feminine way, which is not often recognized as being strong. Like being a mother takes a fucking lot. You have to be strong to be a mother. It's not a choice taking care of her family going to these extreme measures to save one of her kids like all of that requires strength and bravery it's it's honestly a good story on the face like for me as a kid there wasn't a lot of stories that followed this sort of like actual almost realistic feel to it like they're like they're saying like disney films are kind of fantasy wonderland no one's in danger and like secrets of nim comes out and it's like look 
the story real quick is that she lives in a cinder block in the farm and the farmer is going to tow up the yard and her youngest son is sick. So she has to find a way to move the house or save her kids or else they're all going to die because she doesn't want to move without her son. And if he, and if he moves without, you know, if they move the son, he's going to die from the chill. So she has to make this sort of like Sophie's choice, what she's going to do. And she discovers the rats, Nim and blah, blah, blah. Real great stuff. Watching a movie, any movie I watched from my childhood now in like the quote unquote me too era makes me realize some things about movies back then that we'll get also probably get into. But Miss Frisbee was like definitely my, my first like cartoon crush. Like I had two cartoon crushes. Miss Frisbee was one of them and the squirrel from Sword and the Stone. Mm, um, so rodents, rodents I, do it for you. I don't know why, man. I can't I can't <laughs> choose what I choose. Uh, but also like that movie came out during a time where there wasn't a lot of new stuff and it was just refreshing and interesting and and just really resonated with me as a kid land before time is connected to this studio right like doesn't don bluth do land before time as well yeah he did uh he did land before time and american tale together with spielberg so those were two of the movies actually his only two movies where he wasn't in the hole for them because spielberg just like bankrolled him for those so those are the only movies he really made a profit on yeah. And those two movies I, I loved as well as a kid, like American Tale and Fiebel Goes West, classic top-notch storytelling and Land Before Time traumatized me. He <laughs> didn't he didn't do the sequels. He only did the what? first one. Yeah. <laughs> That's where the money is. Bluth, you missed out. Um, but no, the first, the Fiebel um, American Tale is really cute. Um, I love that one. And this one, I think it's just magical. And besides the fact that it has literal magic in it, <laughs> um, it's just a really great film. All the animation's great. You can tell it took a lot of work. It's fluid. It's um, interesting. The characters are so vibrant. The, the landscape is completely different from a, a standard Disney film. When they go into this lantern and go down the elevator down to the rat's headquarters, it's so vibrant and, and beautiful. My VR headset glitched during one of the scenes because it was so much colors for it um the scene where they talk about the rats experimentation there's like a oh the psychedelic dna psychedelic dna stuff was coming through the screen and it glitched a little bit because it couldn't comprehend it so well i think that was Um, my favorite scene it's it's so gorgeous it's so good and that's all hand done animation painstakingly done by people that's great Mm -hmm. Um, yeah i think they were working 110 hour weeks mm -hmm. and it took them two years to make it so, because they started the studio in 79 and it came out in 82. And I was a book nerd person as well as a movie person. But I like books a lot. And the sequels to this book, which was made in the 70s. 1971. By, by Robert C. O'Brien. Yeah. His daughter wrote the sequels. Wrote the sequels, 19, yeah. 1986 and 1990. So this is right at the time where I'm starting to read books. So I picked those up and I'm into those books and I read the original and blah, blah, blah. Fun facts about the author, Robert C. O'Brien. I'm doing air quotes because that wasn't his real name. That's his pen name that he wrote under because he was actually a journalist for National Geographic for his entire career. And National Geographic did not and possibly still does not allow you to publish anything else. If you work for them, you work for them. And it's through National Geographic. So he came up with a pen name and released four books, including Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. I had a handful of books that I would just read over and over and over. And that was one of them. The movie I only ever saw once. I had it on VHS. I remember that much and watched a lot. And then, you know, like you get old and they sell it at a garage sale for some reason. An interesting thing about the movie is that um, a lot of animated features back then depended on songs and music to kind of carry it. And this one doesn't really, it has one song in it and it's sweet, but it's not like overture fucking Beauty and the Beast style pounded into you like songs. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, it's got a score. It's not, honestly, the music is probably the weakest part of the film, but I'm glad it is because what, you don't think so? <laughs> you the, made the a score, face. <laughs> you made a face. The score overall is, is, in my opinion, is like the best score ever, but I like the fact that it's not the best score ever. I like the fact that the song isn't, the song that she sings to Timothy while he's sick. It's definitely not an Alan Menken classic Disney, which I mean, that was just another way that Disney made music is because if you had a musical soundtrack, you would have people wanting more content, buying the CDs, buying the soundtrack. And the person who did the music for this one was Jerry Goldsmith, who has like a huge, he's done so many movies. Most of them, this might've been his first animated feature. He did Planet of the Apes, all the Planet of the Apes movies, 
Patton, Total Recall, Hoosiers, The Mummy. I feel like he called this one. In, he called this one in a little bit, you know, like he was like, ah, sorry, that you get is sick. <laughs> according to <laughs> according to some videos I watched about it, he did that. He uh-huh. uh, he was very uh-huh. mindful. He scored it. He scored it based on their descriptions of it. And then he watched um, back the reels of it. And he said, wow, like what you got here is actually already very musical. Like what you animated yeah. is exists as music as it is. So I'm just going to enhance that. And he like redid his score to go with the animation. Not to get on a rat thing, but this movie reminds me a lot of like the Nutcracker. And as far as like when I think of the Nutcracker, I think of the style and the story and the characters, they really stand out a lot to me. And then the secret from that also happens, like the, the characters, the backdrop, the color scheme of it really stand out to me, um, along with like a okay score. The song where there's actually lyrics is called Flying Dreams, which is sung in the movie by Sally Stevens over the top of Mrs. Brisby taking care of her, her possibly dying son, which... Mm-hmm. I wa- when I rewatched it for the first time last week, I almost cried at that part because it's just like a very sweet, tender, maternal moment that I never experienced. And I was like, oh, that looks nice. That's sung by <laughs> Sally Stevens. Oh, and then nice. I wish I had that. <laughs> Literally. I, I was dying of turbo- turbogolosis. Literally. My mom Mater- could me. Maternal crush. Yeah. And then over the credits, it's sung by, I believe, the guy who wrote it. Yeah. Uh, Paul Williams. Paul Williams. Who is from one of my favorite movies ever, Phantom of the Paradise. He plays one of the main characters. He sings in it. He does some of the music. No idea that it had a Phantom Paradise connection. That's crazy. Yeah, (laughs) six degrees of connection from Phantom of the Paradise. The movie keeps haunting me from this day forward. (laughs) It's always somewhere. This whole podcast is to get you to go watch this, honestly, because it's really good. It honestly is. It stands the test of time a little bit. A fun thing that the Bluth Production Studios did, which I love, as a notorious hater of Disney is that for the entire 80s, every movie the Bluth Production Studios released, they released on the same day as a Disney movie. Nice. <laughs> yeah. It's like they're not over their ex. Suck it. Yeah. Suck it. Well, part of what was, there's multiple things that were great about it. First of all, it's petty and I love it because they yeah. were kind of like, fuck you, you're doing everything for money and you're cutting corners and not paying people well. Fuck you. Like we're going to we're going to just show you how much we're competing with you with the people in our garage so what and do an amazing against? job. Oh, not this one. It's uh, the, all the rest of them. So this one, 1982, there was like jack shit. That was just uh, re-releases and shit. 1986, An American Tale came out on the same day as the re-release of The Song of the South. Nice. Good one play. Of Disney- <laughs> Good one play, of Disney's guys. most notoriously racist films. Very ironically juxtaposed with the Western about a mouse who is a Jewish immigrant who comes to America with his family to escape racism. So yeah. they, re- they released that the same day that Disney re-released mm. their most racist film. Oh. Allegedly, Disney's also an anti-Semite, so it's like an extra fuck you. There's been stories about him talking about anti-Semitic stuff before the World War II in the office. Like People just knew that he was just that way. What movie did Land Before Time go against? Because I'm sure that murdered whatever movie that was. Unfortunately, it didn't murder anything, but I'll tell you more about the effects that it did have. But okay. 19, uh, 1988 Land Before Time came out the same day as Oliver and Company. Oh, man. Cute little cat movie. No wonder both those movies seem overshadowed. <laughs> like... <laughs> and then 1989, All Dogs Go to Heaven came out oh, on yeah. the same day as The Little Mermaid. Hold on. All Dogs Go to Heaven is a blues film? Yep. Fuck that guy. He ruined my life. What? <laughs> oh, because he found out the heaven? dogs die? That movie is so sad. <laughs> so sad. All of his movies it's, are sad. It's All the of his premise is sad. a dog is dead. That is the premise of the movie. Guy's like, hey, you watch a movie? This dog dies. That's the first scene. And the then premise is like, something good happens when they die. Or bad. <sighs> that movie made me cry a lot. And not because I was sad, but because it's just a very touching, real film. This made me realize that Donald Booth was behind most of my favorite animated movies as a child. And I assumed all of these were Disney. I never looked into it. It's like Secret of Nim, An American Tale, Land Before Time, All Dogs Go to Heaven, Thumbelina, Anastasia, Titan AE. Like he did, he did everything. Everything was really good in that time period. All Dogs Go to Heaven. I was hospitalized when I was two years old and they only had one VHS tape in my hospital room. And I was stoked because it was all dogs go to heaven. Oh. So I literally, the whole time I was in the hospital for a week. What a I great just, movie for the hospital to have. Yeah. What I watched it on movie. repeat all day. Just, 
as soon as it's done, rewind it, replay it. I knew they weren't Disney. I didn't know those all done by one other one other studio. I thought like different studios did it. I didn't know it was all. It was studio. different studios because <laughs> it was all Don Bluth because after you Secret jump. of Dim, after Secret of Dim, that studio went bankrupt because it did not make enough money in box office. It made a lot in home movie sales and yeah. developed a cult following, but it didn't make enough money to, to break even or to make a profit really mm-hmm. for the amount of money that they were spending. Cause this type of beautiful animation is quite costly. Yeah. You have to pay your workers a living wage. Yeah. And then the question you were saying about it blowing them out of the water, it didn't because none of them really ever turned um, the same numbers as Disney, except for, the two that broke records, or sorry, except for an American Tale, which broke American records. American Tale was huge. And I remember Land Before Time was too huge, though. It wasn't as huge as I remember. Land Before Time made $84 million at box office. So. It was like a lot. And, 80, and $68, uh, $86. Little Mermaid made like $240 million, I think. So Okay, fine. <laughs> I think. Uh, I don't have that tab open anymore. I only have Don Bluth tabs open. That's but. Fair. The effect that these movies did have, even though they didn't financially do better, is that Disney started doing better. And that's why their movies started being so successful, because they're like, oh, shit, people are comparing us to these Don Bluth movies and assuming it's us. And then they're seeing that what we're producing is actually lower quality than what they're producing out of their tiny little studio with 12 animators or whatever. Although they ended up having like 100 animators. But yeah, so it made Disney have to step their shit up. Yeah, step it up to the point where the guys who did Lion Lion King had to quit because they got arthritis from drawing for so long and so many hours. Do you Damn, know about that? No. Yeah, a lot of guys had a very short shelf life because they would draw animation for Lion King. And by the end of that, they're they just had arthritis. They couldn't draw anymore. They're wow. done. They're spent. Wow. Good job, Disney. Way to treat your workers. Yeah. Okay. Glorious. So uh Looking back on it as a child, I have a lot of fond memories and I hadn't watched it in a long time. So picking it up again, here are some issues I had with the film overall. Um, one, the crow character is a little annoying. <laughs> a little? <laughs> a little annoying. He's not very big in the book, but they, they have a, what's his name? It's, everyone has a fucking J name, so it's really confusing. Jeremy. Jeremy. J- Jenner. Jeremy. Uh, Jonathan, Jonathan. Justin. Those are the most, most J names, right? And the mm-hmm. crow's a little annoying. It's played by Dom DeLuise, who I love a lot, but just it was clearly shoehorned to make kids interested, right? Like just here's this comical relief character popped in. I had the thought that Jeremy was the first Star Jar Binks. Yes, that is very good. Yeah, he was the first Star Jar Binks-esque character. Um, I hate the fact that Miss Frisbee has no name of herself and that every door that opens for her is because of her husband, Jonathan. Mm-hmm. which sucks because like she has such, she has such a tremendous journey in this to just save her child yeah but yeah everything is overshadowed by a jonathan her dead husband who people love to death and then b she i wish she had like i don't know anything about her actual history or name it's so upsetting to me yeah i don't know her real name i don't know what what her deal was before she met jonathan and i don't know her anywhere besides being a mother yeah it's upsetting yeah her only um, two identities are albeit very strong mother, very mm-hmm. strong wife, but that's it. She only know her in relation to other people, which is a very classic thing to do to women. Yeah. And this is a book from the 1970s. So, I mean, we can't, we can judge it harshly. Yeah. Um, I mean, the big thing is that they had a female main character though, yeah. you know, and she wasn't like a sexy, she wasn't supposed to be like a sexy character uh, or anything like that. Uh, she still got to be the hero. Just because she was sexy doesn't mean that it was about her being sexy. I mean, when she took off that cape to go do poison dragon's food, I was like, here we go. <laughs> this is it. Nudity. Jenner is such a funny, hilarious villain to me. He's so strong. And yet he comes in like in the third act of the film as an intro to the villain. Like the real villain of this film is tuberculosis. <laughs> and then pneumonia. And, and then the second villain is Jenner, who wants to like fuck with the rats of Nim. And the, in question on the topic that you were saying of yeah. like we don't know anything about her. A, yeah. The biggest question that I have with the story, and these are all things that don't actually bother the, me that much. I still enjoy the book and the movie. But the reason that the rats and mice that are in the story are so smart is because they got these insane psychedelic mm-hmm. DNA injections from the National Institute of Mental Health and these experiments that actually did happen, but didn't actually have that effect. But Mrs. Frisbee, who the not. fans have called Elizabeth after oh. her uh, voice actress, Blackers. they've given her a last name out of respect, or sorry, a first name out of respect. 
Elizabeth Mouse <laughs> was not experimented on. So mm. there's, there's a lot of confusion as to why she's so I able to just like easily catch up with them. Yeah. What do you think? I think um, having relations with Jonathan caused to change her DNA. His DNA went into her and <laughs> changed yeah. her DNA. Oh yeah, yeah. That's actually a really easy explanation. That if like, good. because, because even though the book didn't have magic in it per se, the yeah. idea of like injecting mice with DNA and makes them like so smart, they can read and build machinery is very yeah. fantastical. So it'd be equally well, fantastical to say that it's a contact high. I think it's a contact high. And I think the animal <laughs> kingdom itself has a level of intelligence. Like there's Aunt Sh- Shrew. Mm-hmm. And there's there's um, Jeremy and those characters are kind of seen as like d- dumb witted and kind of comical. So maybe that's just how the animal kingdom is in general. And Frisbee from her contact with Jonathan is just a step above that. She's not in those trenches, which says a lot about society in a way. Um, one thing that's it's interesting about the movie that's not that's in the book, but not in the movie. And they did a great job switching this out uh john justin the the female the sexy rat the sexy rat justin is that the one yeah he's like the cute he's like cute and charming yeah he's the one that flirts with her um Mm -hmm. up and down this film like Mm -hmm. oh you're miss frisbee i'm justin the handsome guard rat i had a crush on him when i was a kid yeah no one couldn't Um, yeah yeah (laughs) obviously for me it's like frisbee than justin like it's it's like (laughs) it's like the fox from robin hood it's just everyone universally has a not fair that fox is so hot yeah. Um, in the book, Justin actually saves her from the cage that she's in. In oh. the movie, she saves Ms. herself. herself. <laughs> yeah, and she outthinks the cage and gets out of it, which is beautiful. Quickly wanted to address the name change because it's very funny, and I think everyone—it's sort of like common knowledge now because I've listened to a bunch of podcasts and watched a bunch of things about this, and it's like one of the most commonly shared factoids about the movie because it's so funny and silly. The book was Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. In the movie, she's Mrs. Brisby. Yeah. That is because, just to be sure, Bluth and team went to the company Whammo Mm -hmm. and said, hey, you have a product. It's a little plastic disc. You throw it around. It's called a Frisbee. Yeah. We just want to make sure it's spelled differently. We just want to make sure if we use this name Frisbee spelled differently, that that's okay with you. And, and Wemo was no. like, fuck you, get out of our faces. If you use Frisbee, we will sue the pants we'll off sue your the stupid pants ass little We're not going to sue a children's company. book, but we'll sue a movie company in a heartbeat. Yeah. In a fucking heartbeat. And unfortunately, they didn't think to do this before they recorded all of the audio for the movie. So they had already recorded everything. Didn't want to yeah. re-record it. So what they did is instead is the sound editors had to go back and splice all of the Fs to make them sound like bees, which Frisbee. it worked. Yeah, I didn't even notice. Bee. Yeah, no Fernbl- one ever knew. Yeah, if only she had like a fucking first name. <laughs> I know. The other thing I wanted to come back to was you were talking about the uh, cartoon crushes. So yeah. this was your first cartoon crush. And my first cartoon crush was Batman. And you were talking oh. about how um, that's normal. How now <laughs> yours is normal too. You're, but you're talking about how looking back on it, you're kind of like, oh man, like I can see Ooh. the like psychological reasons that that's what yeah. I was into and feeling kind of embarrassed about it. I yeah, kind of feel bit. the same way about Batman, even though it's like culturally acceptable to crush on him as an adult. It's not acceptable to me anymore because it's not a character. It doesn't make sense in real life to have a crush on a character. If I met Batman on the streets, I absolutely would not have a crush on him because he's, hmm. he's kind of, he's a ridiculous character. But I grew up without a father figure or any protector of any kind. And what does Batman do? First of all, very manly, very protective. He saves little children. The episode where I first got a crush on him was one where he saves a little girl. And that was where that's what like got me excited as a child. It's just very different from the crushes Mm -hmm. that you get as an adult. It's not less about like a psychological need for Protection. A lot of it has to do with the fact of what you lacked in childhood and what you know in childhood. So if somebody can fill those voids of what you lacked in childhood, you tend to have a attachment crush to them. So I think Batman makes sense. I think Frisbee, Fris, Frisbee, Fris, Fris, I don't know how to say Frisbee. it now. Frisbee? Frisbee. Frisbee. Frisbee with a B. Frisbee. D- depending on if you want to get sued by Whammo or not. I don't want to get, do you want to get sued by Whammo? Yeah. All right, frisbee it is um elizabeth 
she she definitely has that sort of caring openness about her, like willing to go to the lengths to save her child. Like that is very admiral and something that I probably didn't have as a child because I felt very detached from my mother. Um, so I can see myself lacking that. And then also the design is just like, I don't know, it's just something about that design of that mouse is so sexy to me. Like just sleek, sleek and just like, I don't know. I, I can't describe it. Like, how do you describe what you're attracted to? Luth was able to draw mice hey, in an that. extra cute way. Look at that sex. Look at that sex. <laughs> That's a very too. seductive pose. Yeah. It's like a frozen picture. I will describe for the podcast. It's like a frozen picture and her eyes are kind of like, like, like. Um... Come hither. Do you have any other thoughts or specific scenes? I, I really don't like Mr. Ages for being such a dick. Ooh, yeah. That reminds me of other things I want to talk about. Go on. Sure. I just saying that like you meet him, he's the first other character you meet besides Frisbee and he just treats her like garbage. And he was like Jonathan's sole other survivors. So maybe he has like some survivor guilt because he is the last mouse from the NIM experiments, but why be an asshole about it? Yeah, it's a choice. Like, he didn't have like a reason to be a dick. There was no reason for him to be a dick to anybody besides the fact that he's old to explain his behavior towards her. And to other people. On the topic of both Mr. Ages and Auntie Shrew, who are both very mm. rude characters, very rude, just grumpy, cantankerous characters. I like simultaneously liked and disliked it. What I liked about it is that it showed nuance of character and it showed that not every good guy, like it's showing children, not every good guy has to be super nice or cute or mm. pretty. Someone being cute and pretty and nice doesn't necessarily mean they're a good guy. And someone being grumpy and cantankerous doesn't mean they won't save your life multiple times, yeah. help you save your child and all of that and, and be there for you when it really matters and still be able to like have a bond for you. Like they bond and cry over Nicodemus's death. So on mm -hmm. the one hand, I like that. On the other hand, it can also normalize being a dick. Yeah. <laughs> so I like that it shows people have nuance and it's not always obvious when a bad guy is a bad guy and a good guy is a good guy but also yeah. choices. <laughs> you can make better choices. Aunt Shrew character. I enjoy a lot more because I have relatives that are like that. And <laughs> yeah, I do though. Like the ones that just kind of burrow in and they have their sort of way about things and they don't want to be, you know, uh, also in the book to explain that she's not so much like an aunt to Frisbee and the kids as she is just sort of like the auntie of the forest creatures. Like yeah. Everyone just kind of depends on her for leadership. So I can see her being kind of stressed out leadership position where she's trying to manage everybody. It's moving day. We got to get, what are you doing, Frisbee? Why are you wasting my time? I got to yeah. get going. She helps everyone evacuate. Like she sends out the yeah. call when the tractor's coming. Yeah. Super important character and yeah. has no time for Frisbee's shit. She doesn't have time for a single mom. God, <laughs> being a single mom sucks, dude. That's what I learned from that movie. <laughs> being a moral. single mom. Yeah. The moral is it sucks, dude. It sucks because. You know, like no one thinks you could do anything on your own in this time period. And then, you know, you have to work twice as hard for just a little bit of respect. It sucks that you don't really get to know more about Jonathan as a character. He's just a ghost in the story. You really, it's nice to see what he looks like because they kind of show him. But like, we don't really get what he did besides be the rat's tiny friend, like did all the tiny things like, it wasn't like Jonathan had a characteristic that made him likable. It was the fact that he could squeeze through a bar better than anybody else and could go through a hole nobody else could go through. Yeah. Like those were his those were his redeeming qualities from the rat's point of view. Any anything else you want to I say to want sell, them to push it on people? I would want them to re-release it in next year because next year is going to be its like 40th anniversary. Like they need to put that movie back oh, out yeah. for for people to watch. And I think it's a good movie for kids. It's Land Before Time, Dark. The dog dogs go to heaven super effing dark uh fible uh, uh american tale great um a secret nim not that bad put it on the theaters <laughs> people see it bring it out re-release it i will note that there are three on-camera deaths in secret of nim and what? it opens the very first line of the movie is jonathan brisby was killed horribly and there was lots of blood just kidding it was but it's it, he was just writing down his journal. He was just doing live, some live journal stuff. And you yeah. guys are harping on him about it. There's, some, there's also a scene dies. where the animals are being tortured in cages and there's mm. actual blood on the walls. That was mm. the actually the most like gruesome yeah. moment of the movie, I think. In the book, Nim is like teased through the entire book almost to kind of yeah. make you want to read more to figure out what Nim is. In the movie, it's like five minutes in. And then the wife just says to the farmer, hey, Nim called. 
He's like, who? It's the National Institute Institute of Mental Health, you know, down the street. And like, just like blows that secret out of the water for everybody. (laughs) Yeah. It's so funny to me. And to answer your question, the people that die are Nicodemus Nicodemus, Jenner and Jenner's henchman, which I don't know if he had a name or not. But he like he kind of saved the day at the end because if it wasn't for him, like more people would have died. Probably Mrs. Brisby would have died, too. Oh, yeah. Jenner was on a fucking mad kill killing spree after killing Nicodemus. He's just on a bloodlust. Yeah. Like, yeah kill I all of them. Bloodlust. That's it. Uh, in summation, fuck Disney. Yep. <laughs> Don Bluth is great. Uh, most of his movies are great. Not all mm-hmm. of them. Most of them. Well, thank you so much for being on the pod. You can catch me on Rankinator, my podcast. I try to do it every every other Thursday. Um, Rankinator is a ranking podcast, game show, really fun comedian stuff. Um, I also do stuff with Zexy and Banditos. You can find Zexy Banditos on YouTube. We have some some good videos out there, and we have more content coming down the way. And I got my own projects I'm working on. Hopefully, I'll get them out by the end of the year. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'm out. Bye. Enjoy other products besides Disney products. Wouldn't that be a good message here? Always. I was hoping you would say, hello, governor. Hello, governor. Hello, hello. governor. I love sharks a lot. And one of my favorite DC characters right now is uh, King Shark. And um, the Suicide Squad just released a special trailer featuring just him for Shark Week for the Suicide mm. Squad. So fat, that's fat, all. Fat, I, fat, fat, fat. Yeah. Well, you showed me some hot pictures of some uh, rips, hilfs, <laughs> as you called it, rilfs. Ra- rodents I'd like to fuck. That's right. So you showed me those pictures. It got me kind of horny for the animal kingdom. And uh, just to clarify for our listeners, I did not send rodent porn. I just sent some screenshots from Secret right, of Men. Right, <laughs> right. Let me tell you guys, if you come on this podcast, get ready for rodent, rodent porn sent right to your, <laughs> your messenger. Oh, God. Don't lie to these people. <laughs> <laughs> It's that uh, it's like okay. that opening of Superman where he's like flying in the void, like Whoa. just when you said want some break, breaking movie news, it, it went. <laughs> Hello. Oh Check. man, the zoom's just going nuts. <laughs> Too many mice's. <laughs>